all like to have these great testimonies, but you know, desire isn't enough. You've got to learn. What do you do? What do you do when crisis hits? If you were out, you know, somewhere and you came into a crisis situation, a person who's trained and knows how to get moisture out of a cactus, knows how to conserve their energy, knows how to do these things, their chance of survival is a lot better than somebody that just strikes out, never has been out there before. I live out in a wilderness type of area, and I guarantee you, you get caught out there in a snowstorm, you get trapped sometime, and if you don't know a few things, it doesn't matter how much you desire to live, you can die in a hurry out in one of those kind of situations. Well, Christians desire to prosper. They desire to have God's will operating in their life, but very few Christians actually know what to do in a crisis situation when the devil's really on your case. And so John 14, 15, and 16 is where the Lord was speaking to his disciples right before his crucifixion. And they were going to go through the worst crisis that they've ever been through or ever will go through. It's worse than any crisis that you and I will ever go through. The Lord knew what was coming, and he was preparing them. And he said in John 16, 1, These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. So he was telling them what they had to do in a crisis situation to prosper, to keep the Word of God working in their life. And so the same thing will work for us. And I believe that right here in John 14, 15, and 16, in a capsule form is everything that you need to know how to prosper through crisis. And so that's what we've been teaching on. John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. You have the choice. The first step when you come into a crisis situation is not to buckle under and think that you have no choice. Well, the, you heard what the doctor said. I hadn't got any choice. You can choose to live. I don't care if the doctor says it's terminal. It doesn't make any difference. You have the choice. If you choose, you can resist death. You can resist poverty. You can resist failure. You can resist all of these things. The first step you've got to do in a crisis situation is not become passive and feel like you've already had it. The devil's won. The Bible says in James 4, 7, Submit yourselves unto God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. The first thing you've got to do is to activate yourself and start resisting because until you resist, the devil won't flee. And a lot of Christians have been lulled into a passive position where they're crying and asking God to solve their problem for them. And even though it's God's power and His ability that's going to solve it, it's going to flow through you. It doesn't flow without you. It flows through you. You know, Ephesians 3.20 says, Now unto Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. You all believe that? How many of you believe that? That's wrong. I caught you. <laughs> it's been five years since I've been here and caught you. You forgot. <laughs> that scripture doesn't say that. I quoted it the way everybody believes it, not the way it is. That scripture, Ephesians 3.20 says, Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That word according to means in proportion to or to the degree of the power that works in us. Just crying out to God and saying, God, I believe you're able to do exceeding abundantly above all things, period, is not going to get your prayers answered unless you get some power working on the inside of you. It's not your holiness that produces it. It's not your greatness. It's not your natural ability, but it is the power of faith. You've got to believe and you've got to recognize that you as a believer with faith that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. So until you come out of passive position and put yourself in gear and start saying, bless God, I'm going to come through this thing. I'm not going to let my heart be troubled. You take control of your emotions instead of letting them control you. You grab hold of yourself. That's the very first step. And then he said, believe in God. The second thing we talked about is faith. I'm going to skip that because <laughs> I'll preach it all over again. Amen. But it's important to operate in faith. And then the third thing he's talked about in verses 2 and 3 is about your perspective. Don't let that thing, don't focus on your problem. 
to such a degree that it looks like, man, if, this, if I can't believe for this, then, you know, there's, nothing's real. What you need to do is go back and recognize that usually God's already brought you through something bigger than the problem you're going through. And if worse came to worse, and if you died, big deal. You go to be with the Lord, amen? If you win, you win. If you lose, you win. Who cares? The devil tells you you're going to be a failure. You're already a failure if you don't believe God. Put the thing into perspective and recognize that God's not going to fall off his throne if you blow it. Amen? Sometimes in this ministry, and I'm sure that some of you have done the same thing, you know, if, if you think that, man, we aren't going to make it, we, we're going to have to close up shop and go home. The devil will tell you, uh-huh, see, you're a failure, and look how many thousands, millions of people you'll ruin. Well, God was making it before I came along, and God will still make it once I'm gone. Amen? I'm not saying that I don't have an impact on people, but I'm saying if worse comes to worse, you need to put things into perspective. Don't sit there and live a lie and try and cover up just because you're worried about, you know, how God could make it without you. So you've got to put things into perspective. And then he talked about knowing him in, in verses 4 and 5. In verse 6, 7, and on through verse 14, he talked about uh, the Word of God. He was talking about they didn't recognize who he really was. They were looking for something else. Thomas was saying, Lord, show us the Father and it'll satisfy us. In other words, give us something more. What you've given us isn't good enough. If you'll just do this, we'll get satisfied. You'll never get satisfied with anything else other than God's Word. Don't submit to this when you come into a crisis situation that, well, what I've got just isn't enough. Man, I need more. We've got everything we need. God gave all of us everything it takes to be victorious, and we don't need new revelations. We don't need new this or that. We need to just go back and get a revelation of what God has given us. We need to go back to the Word of God and treat it like it's brand new and let God speak those things to us. And then he says in verse 12 that if you really believe the same works that Jesus did, you'll do also and even greater works than these. Verse 13, he repeats it, and verse 14, he repeats it, just in case anybody missed it. Man, the Holy Ghost, believing the Word of God, will allow you to do the same works that Jesus did, and that ought to be good enough to get any of us through our crisis situation. Amen? If you can do the same thing Jesus did, you can probably suffer through any problem that comes your way. Amen? Then in verse 15... He begins to start talking about the Holy Spirit on through verse 26, also in John chapter 15, verse 26, and John chapter 16 with verse uh, 7 on down there. He talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about two main things that the Holy Spirit would do. We talked about speaking in tongues that you automatically are pushing into the spirit realm, that when you pray in an unknown tongue, 1 Corinthians 14, 14, your spirit prays. You're automatically moving into the spirit realm, that spirit part of you that's born again and has all joy, all wisdom, all power, all faith. You automatically are pushing into the spirit realm. And yet a lot of us that have been baptized in the Holy Ghost just don't use what we've got. And if any of you weren't here last night, that's the reason I was asking for testimonies because we talked about that and I challenged people to go pray in tongues an hour today and see if it didn't make a difference. And you saw dozens of hands go up. It makes a difference. We've been given a powerful gift and we don't use it. Some of us prayed in tongues the day we got baptized in the Holy Ghost and you pray in tongues when a goose bump goes up and down your spine in a church service and you don't use it any other time. And in a crisis situation, we'll fall down before God and say, God, do something. And he's given you the most powerful weapon that ever was and that's the power of the Holy Ghost and we don't even activate it by speaking in tongues. We need to speak in tongues. We need to pray that we interpret and get wisdom from it. Also, we talked about groaning in the Spirit out of Romans chapter 8 
verse 26 and 27. And that's something that a lot of people haven't understood. But groaning in the Spirit is not speaking in tongues. It's something different than that. And it is a tremendous tool and weapon that will help you tremendously. Also, John chapter 14, verse 26, I made brief mention of this. But did you know if the disciples would have drawn on the Holy Ghost, like this scripture says, to lead us into all truth, teach us all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I've spoken unto you. If the disciples would have taken advantage of that, did you know that Jesus had prophesied over 12 times that he would be crucified and rise again? And three of those times he had specifically said that they'll crucify me, but I will rise again on the third day. In the sixth chapter of John, he says, I have power to lay my life down and I have power to take it again. If they would have drawn on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, did you know that during this time, in between the crucifixion and the resurrection, if the words of the Lord would have been brought back to their remembrance, which is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, instead of them operating in despair, complete defeat, depression, etc., they could have been operating in so much anticipation, expectancy, because the Lord had said clearly what he was going to do. It was the fact that they didn't know the word. Luke chapter 24, it says that when the women went to the tomb, the angel spoke to him and he says, why are you seeking the living among the dead? Good question. Why do we seek a living God in defeat? A lot of people have, go to the Lord in defeat and they kind of want sympathy and pity from the Lord instead of power and answers. And it says that when the angel spoke to him, why are you seeking the living among the dead? Don't you remember his word, how he spoke unto you that he would rise again? And it says, then they remembered his word and returned from the sepulcher. You want to return from a place of grieving, a place of defeat, a place of depression, a place of questions, wondering what's going on. You remember God's word and I guarantee you, you'll return from the sepulcher every time. It'll put you on the right road. These disciples, if they'd have drawn on the ministry of the Holy Ghost, would have remembered the words of the Lord, and if nothing else, even if they didn't have enough understanding to comprehend it, it would have taken the edge off the total depression and devastation that they were in because they'd have been saying, is it possible that this is what he meant, that he's going to be resurrected from the dead? Is it possible that when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it again, that he could have been talking about the temple of his body? If nothing else, it could have given a glimmer of hope, even if they didn't have faith. When you come into a crisis situation, we ought to draw on the Holy Ghost to bring back to our remembrance the words of the Lord. There's been times that the Lord has spoken the word to me in such a strong way and it becomes so alive on the inside of me that I think, God, I'll never doubt that again. Oh, I'll never doubt that again. I mean, man, I, I got a revelation from God. And a year down the road, you come into a situation, you get all discouraged, depressed, everything falls in, and then right before you lose... You remember the word and, all of, and, and you get revived and then you think, why didn't I do that first? Why do we wait until the last moment before all of a sudden we go back and remember what the Lord spoke to us? It's because we aren't operating in the Holy Ghost. We're operating in the flesh. You plug into the Holy Ghost. Go to praying in tongues and ask God to reveal things to you and the Holy Ghost will bring back to your remembrance things that are said. Some of you have been built up during these services, and I mean, you've been charged up. There's been some hope given to you. Some of you are thinking, praise God, I'm going to be able to stand better. Right now, you aren't in a crisis situation. What happens a month from now when I'm gone? You can go to the Lord. You can start praying in tongues, asking God to fulfill this scripture, and you know what will happen? God will bring back to your remembrance the things that Jesus spoke to you. 
If God gave you a real truth through these meetings, the Lord will bring these things back to your remembrance and you can get those things built up. The Bible talks about take heed lest at any time we let things slip that the Lord has taught us. Brothers and sisters, you've got to keep alive these truths. How do you keep the Word of God alive? How do you keep the same intensity when God gives you a revelation? You do it through the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is one that ministers to you in the first place, and if you'll let Him, the Holy Ghost will bring it back to your remembrance and stir you up and keep the thing going, but it doesn't happen automatically. You've got to exercise your faith, and one of the ways you do that is by praying in tongues and specifically believing what God's Word says right here concerning the Holy Spirit. Amen? I could go back and preach all over on that. Let's look down here in John chapter 14. We already dealt with verse 27 earlier. In verse 28, the Lord here mentions something in passing, but this, I believe, is a tremendous truth. I could spend weeks ministering on this one verse and the truth that I believe that this is showing. He says in verse 28, Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now remember, he's talking to them in a crisis situation. They're going to experience depression, fear, loneliness, uh, unbelief coming at them, all of these kind of things. It's going to be the worst situation they've ever had. He is telling them specifically how to keep from being offended. And here he's saying that if you really loved me, you wouldn't be hurt when I say that I go away. You'd be glad to hear that I am going unto my Father. What he's doing right here is dealing with a, a pivotal issue of the gospel that brothers and sisters, very few of us have got a handle on, and I don't believe any of us have conquered. This is something that you just don't deal with one time and it's over with. This is an entire lifestyle. It's a, it's a maturity, a growth process in the Christian life. But he's dealing with here that if we really love the Lord more than we loved ourselves, these disciples wouldn't have been grieved to hear that Jesus was going to the Father. They would have been ecstatic about the fact that, praise God, the Lord at least went to be with the Father. When you cut it right down to it, their real grief was because of what was happening to them, not what was happening to Jesus. Self-centeredness. Did you know when somebody dies, we talk about, oh, we're grieving for that person, and it was just so tragic what happened. If they're born again, I guarantee you that person's better off than you are. If you want to cut right down to it and get to the bottom of things, the reason people grieve at funerals is not because of that person unless that person was lost and go to hell. But if they're a believer, the reason we grieve is because we're grieving thinking about the loss we're going to sustain. We're never going to be able to see that person again. It's actually very self-centered. If we weren't self-centered, a funeral for a believer ought to be a time of rejoicing and celebration. Did you know, actually, we grieve in a death situation because of us, because of our loss. And in a crisis situation, if we would take this one scripture and stop and think about it and say, you know, why am I really grieving? I think that we'd find out that in a majority of the situations, our grief, our crisis, actually is coming because of nothing but self-centeredness. Say, for instance, how many of us have ever got bummed out over finances? And when you're all bummed out, if you were to sit down and objectively look at it, brothers and sisters, you at your worst, you at your poorest, 
90% of the world's population would give anything to trade positions with you. We're griping because I can't get my new stereo. I can't get my new VCR. I've got two beat-up televisions, and I want a third brand-new one. I want a brand-new car. Mine is a year old. And we're depressed because we haven't seen our need manifested yet. A lot of the crisis situations we go through, if you cut right down to the very bottom, the only reason they're crisis is because we are so self-centered and so self-oriented. If we weren't self-centered instead of being depressed, we'd rejoice in the situation. We'd rejoice for the good things of God. Did you know when you come into negative situations, this is the way that people without the power of the Holy Ghost will deal with it lots of times. Denominational people will tell you in a crisis situation to go find somebody else in worse situation than you are. Go help somebody else that's deprived and doesn't have as much as you do. And you know what will happen? If any of you have ever done that, if you deal with other people, and if you've tried to help other people financially, emotionally, any of those kind of things, it just ministers to you when you see somebody that's devastated. And I mean, maybe you got problems, but as you compare it, you say, praise God, man, my problems are no big deal. Automatically, it helps your perspective. You know what it does? It takes care of this self-centeredness. All of a sudden, you realize self's not near as bad off as I thought it was. I deal with a lot of people that get offended over the simplest stupidest things. I mean, things that shouldn't be offending them. Any pastor in here can verify this. I guarantee you, any of you that are ministers, some of the nitpicking things people come to you with. I mean, this person didn't say hi to me. This person didn't do this. And some of the, and they get depressed and defeated. You know why? Because they are just consumed with self. Did you know you can't hurt a person that's dead to themselves? If we had a corpse laying down here tonight, I could spit on him, I could jump on him, I could insult him, slap him, push him around, and he'd never hurt, never feel a thing, because he's dead. Did you know the Bible says that we're supposed to be dead to ourselves? You know why you're hurt so easily when people say something or do something to you? It's because you're so alive in yourself and intact. We have a lot of relationship problems just because self is on the throne and self is intact. I think I mentioned this the other night, but I want to deal with this again, go into a little more detail. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, the scripture there says, Only by pride comes contention. Only by pride. Only by pride. It is not the major reason. It is not a big reason. It is not a contributing factor. It is the only reason that you have bitterness, hurt, anger in your heart is because of your pride. It's the only reason. There is no other reason. You weren't born that way. It is not just your personality. It is not your circumstances that make you angry and make you mad. It's what's inside of you that makes you mad. If circumstances made you mad, if it was just, you can't understand, I mean, how could anybody not be angry in a situation like this. Look what they did to me. If that was true, Jesus would have had no choice but to be angry when people treated him the way that they did. It was totally unjust. Somebody says, well, that was Jesus. Well, Jesus never operated just out of divinity. He operated as a man by faith in God. But even Stephen, Stephen turned around and said, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. He ministered complete forgiveness to the very people crucifying him. The Lord tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. 
That means that the Lord commanded us to forgive exactly the same way that God forgave us. And Jesus turned the other cheek and turned to us when we crucified him and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The Lord wouldn't have commanded us to operate that way if he didn't give us the capacity to operate that way. He'll never command you to do something that you cannot do, that you don't have the power. So brothers and sisters, we do have the power to walk in love towards people. You do have the power to walk a offense-free, a no-fault relationship with people. Man, we could spend the rest of weeks just dealing on relationships right here. Most people don't know how to walk in a no-fault relationship. Most people are treating other people the way they deserve to be treated. And I guarantee you, if you treat somebody the way they deserve to be treated, you are going to be a mess. Because people don't deserve to be loved. None of us deserve to be loved. Nobody in here deserves to be loved. There's not a person in here that's worth spitting on. Hey, now, brother, you don't know me. Well, you're going to compare yourself with somebody else. You're going to say, I'm better than Dean. I'm better than this. I'm better than that. But I guarantee you, if you put yourself up against God's standard, every last one of us has and still comes short of the glory of God. Every last one of us blows it. There's none of us in here that are going to continually do good. You know, you may see me up here and you may think, hey, he's all right. I mean, this guy seems like he's got his act together. But see, you're seeing me at my best. You ask my wife, amen, <laughs> and it's different. I still got problems. I don't deserve to be loved. If my wife gave me what I deserve, she'd divorce me. She'd leave me because I don't take care of her exactly the way. I'm commanded to love her as Christ loves the church, and I've never done it yet. I've never fulfilled that. And see, if she has this mindset, well, the Bible says you're supposed to treat me this way, and because you hadn't treated me this way, I'm justified in feeling the way I feel. See, that's the way most people feel. But brothers and sisters, that's not right. Did you know itself isn't intact? You cannot be angry without being self-centered, selfish. That's what the Bible says in Proverbs 13:10. My brother is the kind that has a temper, and he throws fits and gets mad. He used to. When I was a kid, boy, he used to lose his temper. And I've heard my brother say this dozens, if not hundreds of times, after he's mad, after he's hit you or thrown something and done all of these things, after he settles down and sees the damage that he did, he'll come back and he say, I'm sorry, if I would have known what I was doing was going to hurt you, if I'd have known, I wouldn't have done it. You know what he's saying? He's saying, when I was angry, I didn't think about you or anybody else. All I thought about was self. All I could think about was what happened to me. He didn't think about what he was doing to anybody else. It was totally, totally, totally self-centered. Every time you get hurt, and remember that anger is not only getting mad and striking out at somebody else. Anger can be pity. Anger can be self-pity, depression, being hurt, going around just bearing a burden. That's self-centered. You can't do those kind of things if you aren't self-centered. If you get into the other person more than you're into yourself, did you know you will not be hurt? The reason we're so hurt is because we are so into ourself. I mean, we are attuned to ourselves, and every time self is hurt in the least, we magnify it and we focus in on self. If we love somebody else more than we love self, you could stop 90% of your depression, sorrow, tragedy, and crisis situations. You'd just be immune to it. But our society, our world, self is all important. Self-preservation at the expense of anybody and everybody else. Self is like a beachhead in our life. It's a landing zone for the devil. If you deal with self, you can stop a tremendous amount of Satan's problems that go on in your life. 
You know, I was watching a deal on television one time, and I am not a pacifist. I, am, I don't like war. I am not for war. I've fought in a war, and I don't think that it's good, but I think it's better than the alternatives at times. So I am not a pacifist. I believe in capital punishment. I believe that it's better than letting people go without any deterrent on them. I believe that it's a scriptural thing. And uh, so the point that I'm making is I was watching this piece on television that was against capital punishment. And they were telling, you know, how terrible it was. And what they did was take a man in prison for rape and murder. And they showed this guy on death row. And they showed him there just lonely, sitting there staring at the walls, which automatically got a response of pity from you when you see this man. And then they showed what he was headed for, how tragic his situation was. And then they went back to his childhood, took his pictures when he was a baby and showed you him standing there with a stick horse riding around playing. And I mean, you look at a kid and it's hard to think that that baby is someday going to grow up and be executed. And immediately it gets these responses of pity from you and you start identifying with this guy. And, and they showed you, you his pictures growing up. They told you about how he was sexually abused and all of these things when he was four and five years old. He was in correctional institutions by the time he was seven. And everything had just gone against him. And by the time you saw his story, you saw his side of the thing, all of the things that have happened to you, it didn't make you agree with what he did, but it made you feel so sorry for like this guy. Like, man, he never really had much of a chance. And the purpose of them doing that was to get you to feel sorry for him and take away the uh, desire to see this man suffer for what he had done. And that's the reason that they were approaching it from that way. When you see his side of the thing, immediately it takes that anger out of your heart for that. But as I was looking at that, and I knew what they were doing, and I knew how they were trying to sway people's opinion, the Lord spoke to me and he says, what if you took the girl that he raped and murdered? And what if you took her baby pictures and showed her growing up? And what if you saw her plans? Maybe she was a Christian girl and she had planned to marry a guy. And here they had all of these great plans and I mean good things for their life. And some pervert comes into her life and so that he can gratify himself, he rapes her and then murders it trying to cover up. That exact same crowd that saw his side of the story and felt sympathy, that same crowd would turn into a vigilante committee totally dependent on which perspective you had. Your emotions, brothers and sisters, are dictated by the way you look at things. If you look at everything from selfish standpoint, look what they're doing to me, look what everybody's done to me, you cannot help but have anger in your heart because self is going to get rubbed wrong every day of the world. But did you know if you quit being self-centered and if you get to where you're more concerned about other people than you are yourself, on the other hand, when you are out of yourself to where you actually are more concerned about other people than you are yourself, you literally cannot get mad when things happen to you. You'll think more about the other person than you do about yourself. Did you know in marriage the reason there's problems in marriage is because a person is totally self-centered? Oh, brother, you don't know what my husband's done to me. You don't know what my wife's done to me. It's not what your husband or wife does to you that makes you angry. It's what's inside of you that makes you that way. I can give you personal testimonies of times I've been offended. My wife can give you testimonies of times I've offended her. Other people in here can tell you of times that they've forgiven and walked in love where you haven't. And the reason is not because of what people have done. Other people have come through those same offenses and they haven't taken offense. It's not because of what other people do that makes you angry, depressed, mad, glad. It's what's inside of you that reacts that way. It's that self that's intact. 
That's a sobering fact, but that's the truth. Why does it seem like everybody is so self-centered? Why does it seem like self has to be dealt with? Did you know when you come into this world, you are totally self-centered? I mean, your mother just had a baby. She's been up working hard. Man, she's tired, hadn't slept for two or three days. Here she is, maybe in pain, something else. And buddy, you don't care. <laughs> Boy, when you want to be fed, you cry. You wake everybody up. When you want to be diapered, you cry. You wake everybody up. The whole world revolves around you. You don't know that there's anybody else. You are the center of the universe. You don't know that anybody else exists. That's okay for a one-week-old baby. But the problem is when you're 40 and 50 years old and you haven't learned yet that there's somebody else. And sad to say, as we grow up, instead of self being dealt with, the job of a parent is to teach that child that, look, you are not here so that people can serve you. You are here to serve other people. It's in giving that you actually receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Everybody in here has heard that, and there's very few people that believe it. There's very few people in here that would not a lot rather get a million dollars than to give a million dollars. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I enjoy receiving because I know that I have to receive to be able to give. But, you know, the reason I receive is so that I can give. That's the only reason. If I could get around it, if I had an unlimited source, I'd be glad to never receive. I, it, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But, see, we're supposed to be taught those things, sad to say, because our own parents are self-centered and they've never dealt with self. They seldom go to the effort because it's easier not to correct your children. It's easier not to discipline them and get them out of that. Like, for instance, you see a woman in the grocery store and her kid says, I want that. And she says, no, you can't have that. And the kid, I want that, raises his voice, begins to start throwing a fit, falls on the floor and starts screaming and hollering and throwing a, a temper tantrum. Do you know what most self-centered parents will do? They'll give it to them because of self. They, 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 everybody's looking at me, and so to take the attention off of self, rather than do what's best for the kid, they'll satisfy self, give it to them. And you know what that kid just learned? It works. Man, self can get anything if self is willing to throw a fit and just make a deal out of it. I can get anything I want. Self was satisfied, and self remains intact. And I'm going to be just real blunt. I'm saying this out of love. But brothers and sisters, some of us are 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 year old adult brats that are throwing temper tantrums. I mean, your mate didn't do this for you. Well, big deal. Grow up. Your feelings were hurt. So what are you going to do? You're going to pout for three or four days. You're going to withdraw yourself. You're going to sit there and you're going to persecute them until they know that they did yourself wrong. And self is going to get its way. Or maybe you get mad and you blast everybody and tell them. You know why? Because self got hurt. We no longer fall on the floor and kick and scream. We now do it in a sophisticated adult way, but it's the exact same thing. We're adult brats. We're babies. We've never grown up. I'd say that probably 99% of us in here have never effectively dealt with self. Nobody in here has conquered it. It's the kind of thing you deal with until the day you go to be with the Lord because God doesn't just kill you and take you out of the way. You have to control it. You have to learn to deny it and exalt God over it. But most of the people in here have never consciously really dealt with self. Most of us, 
I guarantee you, if somebody comes against you, instead of you thinking, why is that person like this? Instead of you thinking about them, why are they doing it? Why are they mad at you? Why are they doing these things? Instead, we think about self. Look what they said about me. Did you know Moses got to a place that when people came out against him, instead of him thinking about how they had hurt him, he fell down and began to pray for them because he knew they were in trouble. How many of you do that when somebody comes out and just lambast you and says all kinds of mean and rotten things? How many of you are so concerned about what's wrong with this person and immediately you start praying for them? Now, brothers and sisters, I am not a perfect example and I don't even intend to give that impression. I haven't arrived, but I've left. And the only reason I'm using an example of me, the only reason I'm using an example of me is to let you know that this is not something that is not working in my life. I haven't achieved, I hadn't arrived, but I can see it working. And there's been times in my life where I have just literally been so into the Lord, more in love with the Lord than I am myself to the point that I was just protected. I was protected supernaturally. I just realized last year, 20 years after I was in Vietnam, what a great miracle God did for me over there. I got a book given to me in Chicago, and this guy, there was 12 people that put their testimonies in that book. And he, he autographed it. He had his testimony in there. And since he gave it to me and he told me how much my teaching had changed his life, I just wanted to read that book and see exactly what had happened to him. I got to reading that book. It's the only thing I've ever read about Vietnam. And everybody talks about all the trauma they went through and the terrible times over there. And I was around a lot of fighting. I was fired at. I could have been killed a lot of times. But honestly, it was one of the best experiences I ever had in my life. I grew through Vietnam. I came out of there a thousand times stronger, a thousand times more in love with the Lord. I had some hard times, but I mean, it was overall a tremendous experience for me. And I've never totally related to these other people who went through all this trauma. When I read this book, it just so happened that three of the people that gave their testimonies in that book were in the same division I was in. Two of them were there the same time I was there. And one of them was on this place called LZ Prep, which wasn't any bigger than this tent. And it was a fire support station. You could see the, the Ho Chi Minh Trail. It was right on the Laotian border, and it was out in the middle of no place. And I landed there two days before that hill was overrun. And I mean, in a place this area, we were taking like 20 mortar shots per hour while we were there. And I mean, boy, you could hear those things coming in. We'd scurry. And this guy gave his testimony about the overrunning of LZ Prep. He talked about the exact time that I was there. And of course, I didn't know this guy, you know, during the time. It was afterwards, 20 years later. And all of a sudden, the Lord opened up my eyes and let me see things from an unbeliever's perspective. And that guy was in stark terror, talking about the nightmares that he's had 20 years later and the things that happened. He's, I saw people's bodies piled up nearly as high as the top of this tent. I was around all kinds of things that went on. And yet, did you know, through the whole thing, I was so in love with the Lord that it was just like I was in a bubble. I was there, but I wasn't there. I was protected. I remember being surrounded by 5,000 NBA and having them charge us, and I could see the muzzle fire not much further than the edge of this tent away looking at that, and instead of thinking of fear, what's going to happen to me, all I could think of is, God, those guys don't know you. I was praying and interceding, God, I hope I don't have to kill any of them. I was praying that somehow God had touched those guys. Did you know because I was out of myself thinking about somebody else, fear didn't hit me? You know why fear hits you? Because you're thinking of self. Did you know people who are heroes and go into burning buildings and people throw themselves in rivers and save other people? 
I've seen, I remember when that plane crashed in Washington, D.C. in the freezing water and these people jumped in and saved people and saved children and stuff. They interviewed those heroes and they said, but what didn't you think about yourself? What about your family? What about your children if you would have lost your life? And to the last person, every single hero will always say, I didn't think of any of that. All I could think of was these people. Did you know if a person would have stood on that bank and have thought about, boy, those people need me, but my family needs me, if they would have thought about self, nobody thinking about self is ever going to become a hero. You just have to be in a position where all of a sudden somebody else is more important to you than self, or you will never do that. You'll never sacrifice yourself. You can actually get to a place to where you just lose yourself and you're so concerned with other people that you take great shots yourself. You take great blows to yourself and you never even acknowledge it because literally somebody else is more important to you than yourself. You know what I'm saying tonight is, I mean 180 degrees diametrically opposed to the world system. The world system and much of Christianity today is proclaiming self as God and self, serve self, do something for self. Sad to say a lot of spirit-filled people were brought into the message because of the miracles, because of the things that you could get yourself, which there's nothing wrong with using that. I mean, God does provide miracles and you do have needs and you can get those men. But many people were drawn to the Lord because of what it will advantage them. And they've come into the thing actually out of a selfish motivation to get self-needs meant. And they've never been taught properly about that you are not the center of the universe. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And many spirit-filled people have self 100% intact. They are using faith to get houses and cars instead of faith to be a blessing to somebody else. The scripture says that you aren't supposed to seek those things for yourself. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things will be added as byproducts. Faith was never intended to believe for houses and cars and things. It's intended to believe for people and to believe to... Be able to use your faith to help other people and things come as a byproduct, not as the ends that you're seeking. But many people came into the charismatic move with self 100% intact, satisfying self, consuming things upon self, and they've started using faith, prosperity, everything else. It's just a grocery cart to go up and down the aisles. God, give me this, give me this, give me this, give me this. Boy, it's quiet in this Presbyterian church. <laughs> And there's some of us, you're so sensitive if your mate rubs you just a little bit wrong. If Dean doesn't spend time with you, I mean, you get offended. The pastor must have something wrong. Did you know one of the qualifications of a minister is that they be sober? And the word sober there is not talking about not drunk. It's talking about grave. It's talking about an attitude. And if you look the word sober up in the dictionary, it means a lot of different things. And one of the meanings is void of speculative imagination. And when I became an elder, I really got to seeking those things out. And I was praying, God, what's void of speculative imagination? And the Lord was showing me that sometimes at our services, you know, there's some people just like these people right here, Richard and Betty and, and Linda, and there's some others that I mean, anytime I'm in an area, they're going to be there. Those people have loved me, and I mean, I just enjoy coming and seeing them. And I go to different areas. There's always a few people that I mean, come hell or high water, you're going to see them sometime during those meetings. And I remember one time when I was praying about what's void of speculative imagination, I'd been into an area and one of those old faithfuls that always came, they were always there, wasn't there. 
They never showed up through the whole meeting. And I got to thinking back that the last time I saw them, I called them out and gave them a prophecy that was so specific. I mean, it wasn't one of these generalized things. I mean, it was specific. I either hit the nail on the head or I really blew it. <laughs> I was really vulnerable in that. And I got to thinking back, and I got to thinking, you know, I bet you I didn't hit it right. Those people probably think I'm a false prophet. They probably have gone out and probably disregarded all of the good that they've ever received from me. I got to thinking, and by the time I got through thinking about self, I could see those people out campaigning against me, telling people I was of the devil. And if I saw them, I'd just ready to punch them in the nose. And did you know the very next night they came and they said, boy, we're sorry, we couldn't make it. We had a death in the family and we'd been out of town all week. We had never have missed your meal. And I got to seeing that, you know, I got angry at them over something that was totally a speculative imagination, just speculating, wondering why they didn't do something. How many times have you ever done I have people come up to me all the time and I walk by them and didn't say hi or something. Maybe I was thinking about something more important than them, perished the thought that anything could be more important than them. But I walked by them and I didn't say hi. And they come up, what's the matter with you? Is something wrong with you? Because I didn't say hi to them. They take offense. They get upset. You know why we do things like that? Because we are so self-centered. How come they hadn't stroked me today? How come the pastor hadn't called me this week? He said hi to that person standing right next to me and didn't even say hi to me. Baby. You need to take the rattle out of your mouth and the pacifier out of your mouth and you need to grow up. Brothers and sisters, we are so self-centered. Jesus was saying, if you loved me more than you loved yourself, you know, you wouldn't be going through near as hard a time. If you really loved me, you could at least rejoice that I'm going to be with my Father and you wouldn't be so totally devastated. If we really loved God's kingdom more than we loved ourselves, we wouldn't fall apart like a $2 suitcase every time something comes. The reason we are just on the verge of disaster all the time is because most of us are so self-centered that self has an insatiable hunger. You can never satisfy. It's always looking for a crisis. It's impossible to feed self enough, to give self enough recognition. It's impossible to ever satisfy the cravings and the lust of self. You're going to live from one crisis to another as long as you are intact as self. Nobody's ever going to please you. You think it's your mate that's your problem. It's you that's your problem. You think that divorcing that mate's going to solve the problem. The only thing wrong with that is you can't divorce yourself. You're going to have to drag yourself with you. And you're going to have that same problem crop up somewhere else. Your mate may be a problem... They may be used by the devil to give you a hard time, but it's you that's actually your problem. And you can prove that because, if anything, all of the divorces that we've had in second marriages, you ought to learn something. You ought to be able to pick a little better the second time. <laughs> but it doesn't work that way. The statistics are that if you ever divorce, the chances of you remarrying and divorcing again increase 300%. It's not other people that's your problem. It's us that's the problem. We just self-centered. How do you get rid of self? Well, let me tell you how not to get rid of self. The denomination will teach on some of these things. They'll talk about dying unto self, crucifying self, things like this. And there's a truth about that. I haven't got time to tell you everything I know in one night. I can come close, but not everything I know. 
I hadn't got time to go into all that. There is a truth in it, but here's the problem. I was brought up in a religion that talked against self, taught you about dying to yourself, and I was even told to make a sin list, list every sin that you've ever committed. And they gave you a piece of paper, and I asked for another piece of paper. <laughs> and remember, I've never said a cuss word in all my life. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never taken a drink of liquor in all of my life. I've never even tasted coffee in all of my life. Now, I'm not putting coffee in there with booze, amen. You got scripture to stand on for coffee. It says you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you, amen. <laughs> I'm just saying, I lived a separated life and yet I filled up a sheet in the backside and I went to the next one. I listed all this stuff, think, and the thinking was that as you see how sorry you are, it'll just break your heart about how sorry self is and you'll get rid of self. Well, it did break my heart. I got to where I felt like I was the scum of the earth. I went around with a, my head down thinking, oh, woe is me, for I'm undone. I'd sing these songs with conviction about such a worm as I. I mean, I knew I was a worm. I knew I was no good. I had the lowest, poorest self-esteem of anybody, but did you know I was operating in as much pride as anybody? Because pride is not only exalting yourself, pride can be debasing yourself. Pride is just self-centeredness. I wasn't exalting myself. I honestly thought I was the sorriest person that ever walked on the face of the earth. When I was in high school, after religion had had me for 16, 17 years, I guarantee you I couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to them. I was the greatest introvert that there ever was because I just felt so inferior. If you'd be honest, some of you in here who call yourself timid, and you wouldn't think, man, you've got pride, that's not your problem. If you'd be honest, the source of your timidness is a low self-esteem. You are constantly thinking of self. If I was to ask you to come up here tonight and share, there's some of you that have something you could share, but you couldn't get it out because immediately you'd be thinking, what's everybody going to think of me? Me, me. Me, it's self-centeredness. Fear of, am I going to make a fool of myself? When I started out ministering, I went through those same things. And you know how I overcame it? I had a man one time say to me, Andy, if you ever get more concerned about the people you're ministering to than you are about yourself and what they think of you, God will use you. And you know, that set me free. I got to where I'm more concerned about the people I'm ministering to than I am myself. And it doesn't matter what you go home and think about me just as long as I get the point across. And you know, it set me free. True humility is not thinking you're the scum of the earth. It's thinking about yourself what God says and nothing higher or nothing lower. Actually, it's not even thinking about yourself. It's just getting so God-centered that self isn't an issue. It doesn't matter if God tells you to do something to your own detriment. You'll do it because you don't care. If he tells you to do something to your own blessing, you'd do it because you don't care. We have an opinion that if you debase self, that's humility. But if you exalt self, that's pride. What if God wants to exalt you? The Bible says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he'll exalt you. What if you humble yourself and God starts to exalt you? You know, if you're truly humble, you'll let God exalt you. If you're proud, you won't do it because what is somebody going to think? What if you get up and if you sing or if you minister or if you do something and people come along and begin to pat you on the back and say, that's wonderful, what do, you, what, what do you do? You say, oh, I'm nothing. It's not me. Oh, don't give me any praise. It's Jesus. You know what you're doing? You're really drawing attention to self. 
Self doesn't know anything. You know what a humble person will do when somebody thanks you? You'll say, thanks. Praise God for Jesus. The people will get up and say, pray for me while I try and sing. I really don't have a very good voice, but the Lord says, make a joyful noise. You all just pray for me. Pray for me. You know, that sounds good, but if you were to meet those people in the supermarket during the week and say, you know what? You're right. You really do have the sorriest voice I think I ever heard. You see how humble those people are. See if those people will say, yes, brother, I know. Those humble people will smack you right in the jaws, amen. They didn't anymore mean it. They were self-centered. What they're doing is knocking self down trying to gain a compliment. They knock themselves down fishing for a compliment. Aren't I really better than what I'm saying? Self-centeredness. It's pride. Man, I was sitting here. I was dying to self so much. I envisioned myself sitting in an electric chair every morning. And I'd sit in this chair and I'd say, Pride! And I'd say, Arrogance! And I'm not studying the Word. And I'd list all my sorry traits and I'd do all of these things, listing how sorry I was. And by the time I got through, I'd spend a whole hour focusing on self. <laughs> I was resurrecting self every morning. I was constantly thinking of self. I wasn't thinking that self was better than everybody else. I was thinking that self was worse than everybody else. And I was totally filled, dominated, controlled with self. That's a religious way of trying to do it. And all it'll do is make you religiously humble. It won't get you rid of self. You'll be so full of self that when the Lord says, you can go lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Whatsoever I do shall you do also in greater works. You'll say, who? Me? And immediately start thinking about the limitations of self. You'll be totally self-centered. The way to get rid of self from Scripture is just to love somebody else more than you love yourself. If you can love God more than you love yourself, you can get set free from self. You know, when I got engaged to Jamie, I hadn't dated in over five years. I'd made a commitment I wasn't ever going to date. Jamie and I were engaged to be married before we ever held hands. God put us together supernaturally. And I was a cement finisher at the time. I poured cement. And I worked with a crew of ungodly men. My boss was a Christian. My best friend was there, but the rest of them were super ungodly men. Slept with different women every night, got drunk, did all of these kind of things, and we witnessed them. And they heard my testimony about how I've never done all of these kind of things, and I mean, they used to give me a hard time, a real hard time. They couldn't believe that this Mr. Goody, Goody, you know, had never done any of these things, and they were constantly trying to get me mad, angry at them, something, so I could prove that everything I was saying wasn't right. And when they heard that I was engaged to Jamie, they knew they had me. They judged me by themselves. They knew that there was no way I could remain honest and upright and moral and be engaged to a girl. They expected me to do what they had done. So every morning when I came to work, they'd lay it on me. Boy, what did you do last night? What time did you come in, Andrew? What went on? And they called it Licky Face. You been out playing Licky Face last night? <laughs> and they'd just harass me, and they'd give me a hard time. And anyway, these guys gave me such a hard time that I guarantee you, I just decided I wouldn't mention I wouldn't respond to him. I wouldn't talk. I never, never, never mentioned Jamie because it was always something said about it. So me, when I was in control, I just wouldn't mention Jamie. But you know, one day as we were pouring cement and I was trailing this bay window, the water was coming up off that cement and I was looking at that reflection there and I was trailing this bay window 
and I was thinking about Jamie, and I was looking there, and I got to saying, I love you, Jamie. And I just got to saying it, and I didn't realize, but I was saying it out loud. And pretty soon I looked, and instead of just my reflection, there was all these other faces round about me. And the whole crew is there listening to me say, I love you, Jamie. Boy, they unleashed on me. But the point that I'm making is, if self would, if I would have been in control, if I would have been thinking about self and what was happening to self, I'd have never have said that. I literally fell in love with Jamie more than I fell in love with myself, and I just got to thinking about her more than I thought about me. I quit thinking about me to the point that actually I did things that didn't help me because I was just thinking more about her. Did you know that same thing happened to me March the 23rd, 1968? that all of a sudden I fell in love with Jesus more than I fell in love with myself. And from that moment on, I was fearful to witness. I forced myself to witness, but I had to force it. From that time on, did you know I was making about 10 extra visits a week and I was getting patted on the back and every Sunday they'd stand me up in front of the church and pat me on the back, tell about how many people I led to the Lord. I was leading more people to the Lord than the pastor of the church when I was 16, 17 years old. I was doing all of these things. But did you know inside there was total fear? I mean, stark terror in my heart about talking to people because I was an introvert. I was self-centered. And I'd go up and knock on doors and I'd be praying, Oh God, don't let there be anybody home. And I was taking people with me to be a witness. I was discipling other people how to be soul winners. And I'd just literally psych myself up. I'd spend hours praying and psyching myself up to where I could go out and witness to people. And you know how I did it? I did it by thinking about what self would get, the recognition on Sunday morning, how people would recognize me and tell about how many people I led to the Lord, and that's what enabled me to overcome that fear. Did you know that's exactly how most churches manipulate you to go out and be a witness? Most churches will sing these old songs about, will there be any stars, any stars in my crown, when at evening at last I lay down. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior's soul? Not one soul with which to greet me must meet him. Greet him. Must I empty-handed go? They'll sing these things about, man, when you stand before God, there's going to be blood on your hands. Your neighbor's going to stand there, stick his finger in, his face, in your face and say, why didn't you tell me about the Lord? And we give these stories and talk these things, and man, the altars fill up with people that are going to become witnesses. You know why that motivated you? Because self is going to suffer someday. I'm going to stand before God and I'm not going to have a crown. Self is going to be embarrassed someday. So what do we do? We go out and witness to people, not because we love them, but because we love self. Religion motivates us through self. Religion has become one of the greatest promoters of self there ever was. Do you want to prosper? Then you give so that self can get given back. You want a new car? Give into my offering and praise God. The Lord will bless it back to you a hundredfold self remains totally intact through that thing give so that self can get you don't give to get you can give to get if you want to get so that you can give it's not wrong to want to get back so that you can continue to be a blessing but to get back so you can consume it upon yourself is nothing but self-centeredness and that is not the proper motivation and the bible says in first corinthians chapter 13 if i give my body to be burned or give all of my goods to feed the poor and don't do it motivated out of love. God's kind of love is not self-centered. It profits me nothing. You know why some of you have plucked thousands of dollars into offerings and you have yet to see the return on it? Because you gave without God's 
selfless, unconditional kind of love. You did it with a self-centered motivation. The Bible says it profits you nothing. There's some of you that have given away tens of thousands of dollars you'll never see a return on because the motivation, the attitude of your heart depends whether you see the return on it or not. Some of us witness for that same reason, not because we care a rip about that person. You're doing it because you felt condemned into it. You don't want to stand before God. You don't want to suffer. You don't want to lose. And I guarantee I can tell you from personal experience that you may go through the motions, but in your heart, you'll be saying, God, don't let there be anybody home. You'll be, you'll be praying for self. But did you know after that experience, March the 23rd, and I found out how much God loved me, I'm... I haven't got time to explain that to you, but I had an experience where for over four months I didn't consciously think of anything but God. And I wouldn't have done it then except that a minister followed me around all over Europe for three and a half weeks telling me I was of the devil and he finally got through to me and finally convinced me I was of the devil and I got to thinking about self again. But for four and a half months I didn't have a conscious thought of self. I was only getting an hour or two hours sleep maximum per night because I was so excited about God. I couldn't go to sleep. Man, there was something to read. I'd stand up and read until I'd pass out. And when I'd hit the floor, it'd wake me up. And I'd get up and read again. I mean, I was so excited about the Lord, I couldn't go to sleep. I had a horse I rode every day of my life. I never missed riding that horse. And it was four and a half months later before I even thought of that horse. I didn't know if it was still alive, if anybody had fed it. I didn't know what had happened to it. I never even thought of it. I used to watch television four or five hours a day. It's four and a half months later before the first thought came to me about what had happened on television. I'd forgotten about everything. I forgot that there was anybody in the world except Jesus. I fell so in love with Jesus that, man, it revolutionized my life. And did you know, immediately, instead of ten extra visits a week, praying in my heart, God, don't let there be anybody home. I quit those visitations on Thursday night, and I just started witnessing to everything that moved. I was knocking on over 100 doors a day, talking to people in stores, restaurants, everywhere, and I never one time thought about what are they going to say about me. I was so concerned about them. I wanted everybody. I wanted them to know the love. You want to get free? You fall more in love with Jesus than you are yourself. You quit thinking about self and you'll witness to people. You'll be bold when you start recognizing what God has done in your life. You'll start sharing with people. I actually had an experience where after this I went up and before that time I'd been praying, God, don't let there be anybody home. After this we divided the city up into sections, started knocking on a hundred doors a day. And I went up, I started in the wealthiest part of town, which was not smart, but I didn't know that. And the people were shutting doors in our face, I mean, just one after another. And we had started asking people, are you a Christian? And we found out that people in this country don't know what a Christian is. They'd say, of course I'm a Christian. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Hindu. I've got to be a Christian. They didn't understand about a born-again experience. They actually pulled coins out of their pocket and said, it says right here, in God we trust. I've got to be a Christian. I had that done to me. So I figured I had to approach this differently. And I was tired of people shutting doors in my face. So one day, I was determined I was going to talk to the lady in this house. I didn't care if I had to knock that door down. I was going to talk to this lady about the Lord regardless of what she did. What a change in attitude, huh? And I went up to that house and I, I figured, boy, I'm going to do something. So this lady knocked on the door <laughs> and she said, yes. And I said, praise God, I found a Christian. And boy, this lady looked at me and said, what makes you think I'm a Christian? And see, right there, she already started admitting that she wasn't a Christian. I had an opportunity to talk to her. 
And I said, well, you got a scripture hanging on your fence out here. And boy, this lady, she opened the door up, stepped out on the porch and says, what do you mean I got a scripture on my fence? And I turned over to Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, and I said, it says right here, beware of dogs. And I just kept reading, amen. <laughs> and I was able to read that whole third chapter of Philippians to her before she shut the door in my face. What a difference. Man, I was using gimmicks. I was doing anything I could to get to talk to people because I was concerned about her instead of concerned about me. Brothers and sisters, the best things that have ever happened in my life have happened when I got rid of self and I just got into somebody else and I just gave my life. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. It's fun when you find out that you aren't the center of the universe and so what if somebody hates you? So what if your wife comes down on your case or your husband comes down on your case? Sacrifice yourself. Think about God. Why are they doing that? Why are they like that? And you know what you'll find out nine out of ten times? The reason they're on your case so much is because you've been so ornery and mean to them. I mean, after all, when you married him, didn't you like him? You liked what you got. If they aren't what you want now, guess whose fault it is? They were okay when you got them. <laughs> you know, if we really loved the Lord, we wouldn't be devastated in crisis. If you really love the Lord, you'd say, Father, regardless of what happens to me, I am so thrilled to be a part of your kingdom. I know that your kingdom is going on. God, I know that you're going to prosper. The reason we get so depressed, so down in the mouth, is because we are so self-centered, so thinking about self. So what if you don't get a brand new house? Big deal. I went in millions to Heir's house in India. But I guarantee you, there's not a person in here that doesn't live in a nicer, cleaner house than that millionaire. Not a person. People on food stamps today, I mean, they go in and buy sodas, buy candy, buy everything with their food stamps. I went through a period for over three years where my wife and I never bought a piece of candy, never had a soda, never had anything except the bare essentials to keep us alive because we didn't have enough money. And I didn't go on food stamps. I may be ruffling somebody's feathers here, but I guarantee you we've developed a welfare mentality to where this government owes me something. People don't owe you a blooming thing. This government doesn't owe you a living. You are here to be productive and to give, not to leech off society. And you need to change your thinking. And you need to quit being so self-centered and sitting there being non-productive soaking up and you need to start being productive and being a part of the answer instead of a part of the problem you need to get off welfare there's some people that may need welfare for a short period of time but it's not generation after generation and year after year and we need to change our attitudes that's not right brothers and sisters i may have just hit somebody's self but that's what i'm after tonight is self amen if you can't provide for yourself better than what welfare provides, you you got one foot in the grave. Man, anybody can do better than welfare. I, could, I threw papers when I was in high school and made over $500 a month throwing papers. Anybody can beat welfare. Boy, if you're looking to the government to your source, you're looking to a poor source. 
We need to get out of this self-centeredness and quit thinking about what can I get, what can I bleed somebody for, what can this church do for me. They haven't done this, they haven't done that. Instead, we need to get in and start thinking, man, how can I be a blessing? How can I get in and help make this church what God wants it to be? What do I have to contribute? Instead of thinking about what is my mate doing to me, I mean, they haven't stroked me lately. They hadn't done what I want. They haven't done this to me. Instead, why don't you get in and start thinking about, man, what can I do for my mate? Some of you think, well, I, they don't deserve it. Well, you don't either. <laughs> Why don't you just settle the score, call it even, and start all over and just see who can outgive each other. See who can just be the biggest blessing. You start treating your wife like a queen and she'll treat you like a king. Don't treat her like a queen so that she can treat you like a king because, see, that's, again, self-centeredness. But if you treat her like a queen, she'll treat you like a king and vice versa. You need to get to a place to where if you never give back to me, I'm going to give to you. God so loved the world. Did you know God gave his life for Hitler just as much as he gave it for me? It's to Hitler's discredit that he didn't accept it. But Jesus didn't love me any more than he loved Hitler. Jesus doesn't love you spirit-filled people any more than he loves the people that aren't spirit-filled. You might love him more because the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost, but Jesus doesn't love you anymore. He loves those other people he wants them to receive. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, God is in a total giving mode. He gave his life. He suffered. I guarantee you, Jesus didn't come here because he just had to have you. I mean, because you were going to be the crown jewel in his crown. He didn't come here because he was just falling apart at the seams if, he, if you didn't uh, get redeemed. He could have wiped us off, started all over, and created somebody else that wasn't quite as frail as we were, that maybe didn't have a freedom of choice, and he could have started over and done a lot better job. Jesus could have wiped us out and been out no, none the worse for it. He gave himself, he sacrificed his life because he loved us. And he didn't love us because we were lovely. He loved us because we were pathetic. And without him, we didn't have a chance. He loved us, and while we were yet sinners, he gave his love towards us. And yet we feel like, well, how can I love that person? Look how they're acting towards me. If you use that same thinking, Jesus would have never given his life for you. Brothers and sisters, we don't understand the love that's been shed in our heart. We're using a carnal love that's based on performance. God's love is unconditional. I will to love you. I'm going to will to love you. I don't care if you hate me, if you spit on me. That's one of the most liberating things that ever happened in my life. When I pastored in Pritchett, Colorado, I was there less than a year, and those people tried to run me off. We saw a man raised from the dead, saw miracles happen. But, boy, I guarantee you, I was tough back then. I'd fight at the drop of a hat and drop my hat to get to fight. And I mean, I just told those people the way it was, and if you don't like it, there's the door. And I probably didn't use as much wisdom as I should, but those people didn't do much better. And anyway, we got on each other's nerves, and I actually had people that threatened to kill me. If I step on their property, they'll kill me to this day. I had people that started coming out against me. They lied. They accused me of stealing money, which I didn't even take a salary. I never took a salary when I pastored a church. They accused me of all kinds of things. I mean, I gave my life for these little ten people in Pritchett, Colorado. Went there, and boy, I, they just turned around and stabbed me in the back for what I did. And I mean, all of these things happened. But did you know I chose to walk in love? I forgave those people. And one of the guys who had been my best friend turned around, and I caught him on the phone telling somebody that I was an antichrist and that it was just terrible. And this guy was doing everything that he could 
to hurt me. And we confronted it, and this guy told me I was a crook. He didn't agree with anything, and he was an elder in the church, and he was trying to run me out of the church. We dealt with that. Did you know I, I threw that on the Lord and forgave that guy? And the next week, I was out driving around, and I always stopped in to talk to this guy every time I passed his service station. And I pulled in, went in and talked with Burley, was visiting with him, and when I came out, I told Jamie, I said, something's wrong. I said, that guy didn't treat me normal. I said, I don't know what it is, but somehow or another, he just isn't the same as he used to be. And she just looked at me, says, what are you talking about? And I said, well, something's wrong with him. He doesn't treat me the same as he used to. And she says, don't you remember? And she had to tell me what had happened. And you know, I had forgiven that guy to such a degree that I went in there and spent 15 minutes and I couldn't figure out why this guy wasn't friendly towards me. I literally had forgotten it. I mean, I forgot the thing. I loved him and it didn't matter. I had literally forgotten what he had done to me. That's freedom. Some of you think you're doing something by being mad and holding grudges and being bitter at somebody. All you're doing is destroying yourself. Strife kills you. It's not going to hurt that person. It's going to hurt you. Brothers and sisters, God didn't make us to be that way. Some of you are carrying around hurts and you feel like, man, you've got to nurture that thing because it's the way of your vengeance. You're punishing those people in your own mind. What you're doing is destroying yourself. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Let God take care of things. Don't avenge yourself. I've got a national known minister that says I'm the slickest cult that they've ever seen, thrown their weight against me and trying to do people in. Says I'm slicker than Jim Jones, the best faith-type preaching they've ever heard, but it's a total cult, and they have gone with all of their power to try and subvert our ministry. Did you know I've since that time, I've loved that person, I've hugged them, I've held meetings with them, I've ministered with them on the same stage, and I can say in my heart, that I don't have a thing against that person. I don't have a single problem with them. I could love them. I, I send people to their church all of the time. I constantly help them. I've given them money and blessed them. There's not a single hurt in my heart over that thing. That's freedom. Being hurt and bitter over that thing is not freedom. You're hurting yourself. God didn't make us to be self-centered. Adam and Eve were so God-conscious that until they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that turned their attention away from God and turned it unto themselves, they didn't even know they were naked. Now that's God conscious. God created us to be that God conscious that you literally could walk out of your house and forget where you put your pants on. Or not. <laughs> we need to get so God conscious that we just forget about ourselves. Adam and Eve didn't even know they was naked until they ate of that tree. Brothers and sisters, we've got a long ways to go. Jesus is telling these disciples, if you really loved me, you wouldn't be half as depressed. It's because you love yourself and you're thinking about, look, what I gave up, all of my hopes. What about my fishing business? Now it's ruined. What's going to happen to me if Jesus isn't real and if I'm not going to be the foundation of his church? What's going to happen to me? The government's going to come after me. The Romans are going to be trying to crucify me next. Me this and me that. That's the reason those guys were in so much turmoil and trouble was because they were so self-centered. That very night, they'd been striving about who, which one of us is the greatest. Which one's going to be the greatest? Self was ruling and dominating them, and that's one reason they had such a crisis. Did you know if you'll deal with self, 
you'll stop a lot of crisis. And if you come into a crisis, one thing you ought to always go back and say, Father, forgive me for being so self-centered. Father, I want your will. And you'll find out that a lot of times you put yourself into that crisis through your own lust, through your own desires. Some of you right now could get out of a tremendous amount of self, uh, a, a tremendous amount of financial pressure if self, if you didn't stroke it so much and put it in silk sheets and, and in expensive cars, you could alleviate a lot of pressure on you right now. And you could stop a lot of your problems if you just didn't spend so much money on self. Some of you are in debt up to your ears because of self. Some of you are in strife up to your ears because of self. I'd intended to cover three more things tonight, but I just believe God hit a responsive chord. I hit a nerve, and I wanted to stick on it. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. It may take me five years to cover John 14, 15, and 16. But that's all right. Brothers and sisters, we need to humble ourselves, and, the, and you're the only one that makes the decision. You make the decision to say, Father, I'm sorry. I see this now, and I want to turn from it. You cannot crucify yourself. All you can do is make the decision to reject self. You lay yourself on the altar like it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Make yourself a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You offer the sacrifice, but you can't sacrifice yourself. You have to call on God. You have to, like Elijah, call on the fire of God out of heaven to come and consume you. But you have to open up the door. You have to say, God, this is what I want. God, I want to get rid of self. God, I want to be more conscious of you than I am of self. God, here it is. Help me to love you more than I love self. You open up the door, but then God consumes the sacrifice. And you know the problem with the living sacrifice, the way it talks about over there in Romans chapter 12? A living sacrifice keeps crawling off the altar, amen. <laughs> You're going to have to make that commitment tonight, and then tomorrow you're going to have to get up, and you're going to have to renew that commitment. It's going to have to become a part of you. It's not something you pray one time, and from now on, man, self's been dealt with. I'm dead to self. I'm never going to have self again. You'll have to deal with this again tomorrow. You'll have to deal with it again. Self is never going to be taken out of the way. It's going to have to continually be reckoned dead. It's going to have to continually be put under the authority of the Spirit. And so this is the kind of commitment that you make and you just throw yourself open to God. And I promise you, God wants you void of self more than you want yourself void of self. If you'll give him the right and the privilege to intervene in your life and if you with your heart will say, Father, forgive me for the greatest sin of all and that's putting self as the God of my life. God, forgive me for that. And I want it to change. I don't know exactly how to get there, but I'm willing. God, you do it. If you'll do that, God will start working on you. God will start working some things together. But the Bible says you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. God's not going to humble you. God's not going to come and grab you and force you to bow the knee. God says you humble yourself. The Word of God is given to make you perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good work. God's Word has come to you tonight. God's asking you to receive the Word of God and humble yourself. He's not going to get you with sickness and disease and poverty. God's asking you to humble yourself. You're the only one that can make that decision. And brothers and sisters, again, I know I'm speaking to good people. I know that you've got good attitudes and good desires. But I really believe that even in a good church like this, and some of you coming because you love the Lord, I'd say well over 90% of these people here are not winning the battle with self. They haven't even left yet. 
there's some of you that have never consciously dealt with this. This is the first time it's ever been presented to you this way. Maybe you've denied yourself in a little area, but I mean overall, that I'm not the center of the universe, that I'm not supposed to just consume everything on myself, that somebody's more important than me. There's some of you that are adult brats and that have never considered this. It's never been presented. You've never had a conscious revelation of what I'm talking about. And for those of you like that, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. I know that everybody in here can respond. I could respond to what I'm preaching tonight. But again, I've already made that commitment. I'm headed that direction. It's like the Apollo spacecraft. Did you know we think that thing went directly to the moon? Boy, such great technology. I heard a guy from NASA speak, and he said every 10 minutes they made a course correction. It may have been very slight, but every 10 minutes they made a course correction throughout the entire length of that thing. Actually, the Apollo spacecraft went to the moon like this. I'm still going like this. I'm still correcting. God's still dealing with me. I get a little more corrected every time I minister on this, but man, I've launched. I'm headed that direction. God has already borne this truth in my heart. I hadn't arrived, but I've left. There's some of you that have never left. There's some of you that have never consciously said, God, I make my body, myself, a living sacrifice unto you. I make you Lord over my life. I want you to be Lord. God, I'll do anything you tell me to. You can't fulfill that, but you can at least make the commitment and let God start working it in you. God, I want you to be Lord. God, I want to renounce my total self-centeredness. Forgive me for blaming circumstances. Forgive me for blaming everybody else. Forgive me for being depressed because self hasn't got this. I hadn't got a new dress. I hadn't got a new car. I hadn't got all of these things. God, for forgive me for being so consumed with self. I repent. If you haven't really done that, I want to give you an opportunity to do that tonight just in front of everybody, in front of God and the devil and all of your brothers and sisters to say, God, forgive me and humble yourself and receive. The reason I believe God told us to confess our faults one to another is because it does your pride, yourself, a world of damage. Those of you that self is intact, the best thing you can do tonight is to stand up and openly admit, I am a self-centered person and that's the biggest problem, really, in my life. I want to admit it. If you can do that tonight, it's not going to be easy, but if you can do that, that'll help you. It'll push you down the road towards victory and towards help a long ways.